Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I'm joined by Joe748 and our guest, Rick from Canada. Rick from Canada, how are you doing? I'm good. Good to be here. Joe748, how are you doing? Doing great. Yeah? Staying out of trouble? Uh, yeah, actually. I thought I was going to get in some trouble the other day, but it was fine. I was getting ready. I was at the casino, and it was a possibility something was going to go down, and I kind of had my phone ready to record on video ready to go but hey it was great it was all good nice drama free and rick from canada we've never met we've exchanged messages through the bj forum but we're gonna get to hear your story so thanks for joining us yeah no i'm excited about it thanks for having me and taking time out of your day oh yeah of course thank you so what were you doing before card counting and how did you get interested in pursuing it i started card counting in high school so before that I had, I had little small businesses. I had the entrepreneur mindset from an earlier age. I did things like I was selling stuff to my siblings at a young age. And then um, right after high school, in order to save up a bit of money, I did do a few jobs. I worked on um, a drilling rig to save up money. It was, it was good pay, but uh, very tough work. So I took it on and I did it for a couple of weeks and then they stopped calling me back. So it must have been no good. But yeah, it was just a few other jobs before that, but obviously not a ton of experience with me starting in high school. So how did you hear about card counting? Uh, another buddy showed me your guys' website. I seen like basic strategy chart first. He showed me that basic strategy had a 0.5 edge over the player when learned perfectly on most games. And that just blew my mind. I thought it would be way worse. I thought you just show up at the casino and if you show up, you're gonna get destroyed every time. And so when I started seeing those numbers, that's what interested me first was seeing that you're actually not at that bad of a disadvantage. And then being able to shift it is not as hard as I once thought. And so were you just a recreational gambler for a while and and then wanted to gain the edge or did you wanna get the edge right away? I had absolutely no interest in gambling at all. It's it's so far from what I'm interested in. So you jumped into card counting as soon as you found basic strategy, you were you're interested in gaining the edge? Yeah, I went home and I and I looked at your website. I watched like all your videos and just became obsessed with it. Um like like most things in my life, when I find something I want to do, it overflows everything. I start just getting obsessed with it. So I started dedicating the time and I think that was about maybe four, I'm bad with the time frame, but I think that was about four to four and a half years ago when I first found it. Yeah. It was literally like 10 to 12 hours a day. I was just oh wow practicing. That's wild. I was doing it in school. I was doing it after school. I was doing it on the job of whatever job I was working. And That's wild. That's a little bit like Levi Mitch. I know that he just like obsessively played on our iPhone app until he was perfect. Did you have a bankroll then if you were in or just out of high school? Yeah, I had a better bankroll than I should have had at my age, just through the taking on some jobs. And uh, one of the businesses I had in high school was I played a lot of badminton growing up, like the racket sport. There was nobody in my town that strung rackets, puts the string on rackets. And so I ended up buying a machine and I started doing it for my town. And then it kind of got busy. So it kept me throughout high school and I started making money off that. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So combined from that, and then when I started training every dollar, I started saving because I was still working out of high school. And so within about a year and a half, by the time I was ready to play, 
I had between twenty to thirty thousand dollars saved in order for a bankroll. That's really impressive for that age. So, what was your solo career like? <laughs> I feel like I'm just beginning it, to be honest. As far as the start of it, first two hundred and fifty hours or so were just break even. The swings felt grueling at that point, and you look back at them now, and they were so small. Getting hours was tough, being from my location. Getting the hours in necessary was very tough. And I think that delayed the process for me for a little bit. I, I felt as if I needed to save up even more money in order to afford these trips. Whereas if I lived in the States, they were more of just a drive away, if that makes sense. But yeah, it, it was so like it would have never stopped me. I just always kept aim at the goal that, okay, I just have to save up a little bit more money in order to do this. From compared to what I've heard, my start was probably slower than many that I've heard on on your podcast. But as of these last two years now that I feel as if we've really grown up a bankroll that now I feel focused and and I feel like the hours are endless. So as far as my solo career, I, I believe I'm at, um, there's so many charts now and whatnot, but I, I must be over 1500 hours. So in between 1500 and 2000 hours solo. When you first started, you were in Canada. I mean, some of the casinos are so far apart in Canada. How did you approach playing there before you went to the States to play? They're very few and very far apart. Yeah, I, I would fly into places. And the other problem I was finding was the most playable games have high minimums um, in some parts of Canada compared to these like little one deck cut $5 minimums you can find in the States. That's pretty much um, not a thing in Canada, I would say. So you, you're having to accept, at least I was willing to accept a higher risk of ruin on my bankroll. And I just had to accept that in order to get the AV. And so I was playing like a $50 minimum game and even a $100 minimum a game. Some would say probably a lot too early compared to what my bankroll could handle. And then so with that involved some scary situations along the way. But yeah, that's what I had to do. I had to just accept that my risk of ruin is going to be higher now. It's either that or I just have to wait. So I was forced with two options, really, how I see it. And I chose just to accept the higher risk of ruin when playing in Canada. Because, yeah, you have to go big enough to pay for the flights, of course. So you say some scary situations. What's kind of the scariest it got? Back then, yeah, when I think about it, it was so much smaller than just like recently. Uh, I felt like I've had more scary situations, actually. But back then, like the most I've ever been down was I swung down seven grand to start the career. That was as deep as I went. And then I didn't stay above even for 280. But like running out of money on trips <laughs> was one thing I experienced early. And then having to fly home and uh, figure out what you're going to do. And so that, that always sucks, right? It sounds easy to talk about it now. But like when you were in the moment of like running out of money, it was like the worst thing that happened to you. And it was gut-wrenching. Were you working? Were you like stringing rackets this whole time? Or did you have any other income? Yeah, I guess I should. I could go over that for the first, I guess, technically like two years of my career because it did start right before the pandemic. So I, I was working uh, equipment operating jobs out of high school as well. So it started right before the pandemic. So then did that shut down your career for like months and months? It did. Yeah, I was practicing and then had my game ready to go, started getting in casinos and then it got shut down. And so I was back to training and my job stayed open. So I was just working and training over the next seven months or so. Did that help grow that bankroll? Yes. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, I noticed over like the first year, I, I hadn't made any money yet, but my bankroll was constantly increasing and it's like my options were opening up. Before going to the U.S., like, did you just try to play everywhere in Canada first and then go to the U.S.? Or when was it that point where you decided to go over the border? I was allowed to play at 18 in Canada. So that was the benefit of at least I can start now. And then I was wanting to go to the States to play, but was still only like 20 at that time. And I was really wanting to go to the States. So as soon as I was 21, I was already full or I wasn't full time yet by that point, but I was about to just take the dive into it because I just I wanted to do this so bad that I don't have kids or anything that I was willing to take the risk early. So as soon as I was 21, it was was when I started heading over to the States. And at that point, did you quit your job or when did you go full time? Um, it would have been pretty much right on two years now is when uh, I quit the job and have been going full time. So did you do trips to the U.S. during vacation time for a while? I was basing it around the state of Washington is very drivable for me. So those were my first trips. I would take a week off work. I had a good relationship with my boss. So he would he would give me the weeks off at a time. And those were the first few trips, just taking a week off work and making the most of it. You have seven days in a car. So I drove down to Washington for the first few trips. Um, after that was gone, then yes, I just started flying out. But as soon as I did start playing in the States, it wasn't too long after that, that I did end up going full time and quitting the job. And how did it progress from you playing solo to getting other people involved? Yes. Yeah. That's the funner part of this job that I've liked is having, having teammates. I had uh, one good buddy and we would talk like we were just friends since grade seven and we'd constantly brainstorm ideas in our spare time. And we both wanted to like learn how, what's the best way to make money. So we were always like brainstorming ideas together. And then as we got busier, we seen each other less, but we still remained pretty focused. And when this started taking off for me, um, we started talking about it and yeah. And he was really interested in it. And I was like, well, you could, you could start training, man. You have what it takes. And he did. I've dealt so many cards now at this point to players, it feels like. And that's been amazing. But yeah, like everyone that I've taught how to learn this has learned so much faster than me. And so, yeah, he was ready to go in about four to six months after I showed it to him. It was like, OK, you're ready to go. And um, so I started bankrolling the my buddy. Do you think the reason that they were able to kind of progress faster than you is because you kind of went into it alone. I mean, you had all the resources online and stuff, but you know, you were going at it completely alone at the beginning, whereas they had someone to guide them along the way in person. Yeah, it absolutely speeds up the process when you have someone there to um, weave through the bullcrap or whatnot. But then also, I just think that my memory is not the greatest. There's other perks where I like, I have the work ethic for it and I have all these other attributes. But yeah, my, my memory is very weak, I would say. And so I think that's a big factor to them learning quicker than me as well. It was just tough for me to learn it in the beginning. It's yeah, <laughs> I, it took me a while. I was very slow to learn this as far as the memorization goes. Were there any concerns with bankrolling a friend? Um, well, that's the biggest concern, right? Someone that I trusted so well, then yeah, it would be a hard thing to do, especially that early in my career. Like I had only been playing about just over a year, maybe. Uh, so that's early. And yeah, you're taking risk there. But if you trust the person, then I, I would say go it. I read plenty of books saying don't do business with family. And I couldn't disagree more with that. Family and friends. I think that when you do have people in your life, I think you should 
be more so like using each other. And like I said, we were always brainstorming ideas how to make money in this world. And so he was just like the perfect candidate that I didn't have too many second thoughts about it. And um, yeah, I, I have complete faith and loyalty with my entire team. And I feel like we have a really powerful group and everyone feels the same way about each other. Everyone knows each other very well. And we have 100% trust in each other. And over the first few trips, like we've proven that no one's worried. There's been no um, trust issues amongst the group. And I'm really happy about that. How many people are a part of your team now? There is five of us total, six, but one of them plays so part-time that he's really just starting. So I would say, I would say five. And what was that progression like? So your buddy since seventh grade learns, tests out. Did you bankroll him or? Yes, I started bankrolling him as soon as he was ready to go. I showed him the options of, look, if this is if you're wanting to do it yourself, this is the route. Um, if you want to do it together, this is how I can speed it up for you. And so we started him on a lower spread, got him uh, comfortable on lower limits at uh, these local games. And then uh, not long after that, it was just right to the States. And I pretty much threw him in the deep end from wherever I was starting there. I didn't have him go much lower. It was just 20 hours of practice. I could deal to him and I know he was flawless um, as far as training goes. Watching him at the casino, he had it was a winning game. There might have been mistakes, but it was a winning game, no doubt. And so I felt comfortable to just send him in for it. Did you guys travel together or just split up and play? The first United States trip, um, I took him to Washington State as well. We drove right from our home in Canada uh, down to the States. And his first real blackjack trip was just under a month long or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, he quit his job at that time or was in between jobs and just had the time. So we were like, all right, let's make the most of it. And we just started driving. And how many hours had you played by the time he's tested out and playing? Maybe just under a thousand. Well, early in my career. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, having some people, they want to start teams like with no experience. It's harder when you have been through it and the, like all the swings, the back offs, the, you know, the highs and the lows, and then you bring someone in, you're able to guide them through experience, not just from theory. So that definitely helped. I had a ton of confidence in this worked for me. I know what you can do at all these games. And it was like, I just had such a clear vision as to how do you start this? And I was just so excited about it. Even being younger back then, like it was just a no brainer to me. I was so excited to get someone else started. And if you can remember, was there anything that you told the first couple of players, like any pieces of advice that really helped them? Things that you wish you knew, like before you started, like were there any warnings or anything you offered them? Oh, there would have been so many because like I said, um, us hanging out as friends now just became like, okay, I'm going to deal cards to you and you're, I'm just going to teach you everything we know. Here's the videos you have to watch uh, showing him your stuff. But as far as the best pieces of information, as far as the back off goes, I think I take a approach that might be slightly different in areas where I really just like to focus on efficiency because for me, I was coming in there so young and my buddy was the same. So young and spreading large. It was so tough to build an act that was actually going to gain you extra any time. And so I really focused with my team on the efficiency of getting to the next spot as quickly as possible, having everything in order and just getting your routes figured out. So I would say that that was some of the best information that I didn't know I had to 
experience for the first time. Whereas when they came in, um, we had Casino 411 map dialed, ready to go. And I would show them how to do that and uh, just be as efficient as possible. Like I took an approach where I don't want to hear about the back off. I don't want to hear about the other ploppies at the table. It might sound uh, a little mean, but I don't want to hear about none of the stories. Let's just get down. Let's let's work as much as we possibly can. What was your uh, team policy as far as like, when are you supposed to cash out chips? Are you not supposed to cash out chips? Like how did that, how did that all work out? Like after a back off or something? Yeah. For the most part, when back off comes, uh, if you're alone, you're cashing it all out. And considering I don't have a U.S. address, then yeah, we needed to get rid of all chips. But uh, at certain times, yeah, if we're both in the same area, then yeah, just a, a quick text, like any anything over 10K, they have to um, just send me a text before cashing out. But we are a team that, like I know I've heard others on the website, and I agree with like so much of, of how Colin, you've taught to approach the game. But we do hand around ID without much issue at all. Awesome. Yeah. There are like, to me, suggestions, but, you know, people are like, oh, Colin, I, I do what you do and I'm just 100% aggressive all the time. And I'm like, well, that's my default. But I also think there are exceptions to that, you know, like Scott Chow or whatever. So the playing unrated, yeah, it's, it's the best move for me to, to play unrated for a lot of people. But yeah, if you're young, you're going to have to give ID all the time anyway. And so just go for it. And, and deal with it. So hopefully people understand, can like decipher between, yeah, this is our advice, but there are exceptions as opposed to this is a rule you cannot break. Yeah. Cause like us being yeah, extremely young, we we're having to show ID all the time. So the approach we really took for it was unless otherwise specified, we were going to play unrated, but then when back off comes, we are completely willing to show ID when we know we're going to have to show it at the cage and rather than go through that battle at the cage um, for the majority of games, I like just making it as easy as possible for them, hoping that they make it as easy as possible for me on the way back. What made you move beyond two people and how did you determine, like, were you talking to friends about it or were they coming to you? How did you decide to grow this? That's a great question. So everyone that has played for me or wanted to be a part I think has come very naturally and every single one of them are just people throughout my life. So the first one being my best friend and then shortly after that being uh, my roommate who is also family. So it was just through them asking questions like, where are you going this time? We're bouncing around and then me answering the questions, I, I think raised their curiosity. They wanted to start on their own. And I would just give them like four steps. It would just be like basic strategy, the count, deck estimation, deviations. Like these are the four things you have to learn. All Everything is out there on the website. Go to Blackjack Apprenticeship. And if you want to learn, start learning. And then I'll, I'll talk to you in two weeks and we'll see how if you really wanted to learn or not. And so the people who did, who stuck with it and who were learning the process, then I started helping them and dedicating time towards it. Have there been any friends or family that were really interested, but you realized at some point they can't do it? They don't have the personality or there's not enough trust or something? Yeah, absolutely. I haven't been able to take on anyone, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of just wild personalities uh, of friends that I have that I think they'll do like maybe great at something, but this is, it's not for everyone for sure. 
I was 23 when I started playing professionally or full-time or whatever. And I just thought every one of my friends is going to want to do this. You know, we found the incredible hack that no one knew about. And it turned out most of my friends couldn't do it. Like, not that they weren't smart enough, but I've probably told the story before, but my best friend from high school, we trained him, sent him in to play a promotional game that had an edge off the top. And within like an hour, he's down 10 grand, went to the bathroom, threw up <laughs> and left and was like, I can't do this. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean you can't do it? We'll give you more money. Just, you know, he just, anyway, the point being, I thought everyone could do it, but it does take a unique person. And to be honest, it's a little surprising that that you have found as many people as you have. I know that we did too with, with the church team, but it's not easy to find a group of people that can commit to it, can handle it emotionally, can handle it mentally, can handle the, the travel, all of that. I don't know if it's just you've been been lucky or if there's something about your group of friends, but it's it's surprising. No, absolutely. Like some of the people that I have in my life, I am blessed about. I have great people in my life. And so maybe that's why I lean towards that uh, idea that uh, you should use family and friends to your benefit because I was blessed with amazing people in my life. But yeah, I would say still I've turned down most who have wanted to try. Um, and then like you were talking about with the swings and everything, every single one of my players has gone through those exact same gut-wrenching minus 10K to start the first trip, um, sitting on the phone with them, talking them off the ledge. So yeah, it, I've found that it really is just a process where you do just have to like tighten up the gut. And there's a lot of things with it where you just... You can tell them everything, but until they experience it, it's a different thing to feel those swings rather than hear about them. When you uh, started bankrolling these initial people, how did you decide on like a payout structure, percentage of investment, payout? When do you pay out? What happens if you're losing for 300 hours? How does that work if they quit their job to do this full time? Like, how did that all look? Yeah, it definitely was a lot easier when everyone was part-time to do those splits. You barely have to think about it. 50-50, we'll chop when we want. Yeah, but now that uh, I do have some full-time players, we adjust the spread compared to what their net worth is so that they're always in a comfortable spot where they're not going to hopefully go broke um, on one of these trips, them being very early in their careers. And then, yeah, I'm open to talk about everything I do as far as numbers-wise with my team. It's just a 50-50 split. I'm, I'm bankrolling. It's 100% risk of my money, and they're risking their time in order for a complete 50-50 share. And then um, as far as expenses goes with my team, I help them out early on, saying, that, like, okay, I'll cover this trip for you. You want to go on a trip? Let's take a week off work. Um, your expenses will be covered upon a loss. Um, if you win, maybe we split 50-50 further along the their career. I start being less nice with the expenses fees. And so, yeah, it's pretty much when either player wants to chop, we do a split and they can um, have, a, usually before a big trip, we do a split so that they can have money in the bank to pay bills, everything like that. I, I like to chop as long as possible, to wait as long as possible. And they've been great with doing that too. And they've grown great savings accounts through this. When you're responsible for bankrolling several people, is everyone's results pooled? Or are you kind of doing separate transactions with every single one of them, like splitting it all separate one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, unless otherwise stated, 
they're all playing on their own numbers as individuals. And then it's just a 50-50 with the investor. But we have done team trips where we have hit an area and we have agreed as four groups or as a, as a team of four was the last one that, okay, we're all going to play this area and, until you cannot get another hour in and we'll combine it as a team and uh, everyone's, yeah. So, we, so we've done it both ways. Um, but for the most part, everyone on the team is playing as an individual that's interesting. Playing as an individual, that provides for that player the motivation to play well, play at their best, because if it's a team, maybe there's a little bit of, well, other people have my back. I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully everyone wants to play their best. But I think that was one of the problems with the church team was that it felt too big to fail. If I'm losing, well, other people are going to have to win, right? And we have this big bankroll. And well, it's such a small edge. Everyone has to play very, very well all the time. If they only get paid based on their profits, then there's that built-in motivation. The downside, though, that we all know is like any individual can have a long losing streak. A benefit of a team of four or five people is that you should be able to get to the long run faster together. So that's interesting that you know, you've got the benefit of the built-in motivation, but then only on those team trips do you have the built-in benefit of the covariance, I guess you'd call it. How did you decide on that? Is just how it started with one person and so you repeated it with the next? Yeah, yeah. When I think about it, everyone was on such different schedules as well. And I guess when you have one player, there's no other way to do it. So I, that's just the way I started and that was the way I know. So when you ran the church team call in, um, how did you decide... Uh, did they have to hit a certain amount of hours in order to get paid then, I assume? Yeah, we did different things. Like before the church team, we had a start off with two of us, then three, and then four of us. But um, it was initially time goals, like let's play for three months. And knowing that, hey, three of us playing for three months, we're going to have quite a few, you know, maybe 500 to 1,000 hours after three months because we were all playing so much. Then we went with financial goals. You know, we're going to play till we're up a certain amount. And the majority of my career, that's how we played till you won a certain amount. And that can be really discouraging when it's dragging on and on. The time goal, at least you know, hey, in three months, I'm going to be able to access my money. But that also could mean after three months, <laughs> we're chopping and we're down. So we didn't have our goals for individual players, but that's risky too. We had a situation on our older team where there was a guy that we just paid him to play. But then he would say, if the bankroll was down, he'd be like, well, tell me when it's in the positive again, because I'm not working for free. Or, well, we didn't just pay him to play. He didn't invest. So he was just not motivated. We didn't pay him hourly. We just paid him a percentage. But if it was down, why work? Yeah, we tried different things. Like having all the proper motivations isn't a simple problem to solve. And you're even saying, oh, we could chop as, as often as we want. Well, that's a risk to you because let's say you they just have a super lucky weekend and they win 20 grand and they say, I want to chop. So you chop. Well, then the next weekend they could have this huge, a $20,000 downswing, but that entire 20,000 is on you, not on the two of you. There's risks to that too. But I suppose if you just can trust that they're going to get in all the hours <laughs> eventually you know, you can weather that. Yeah, there there would be risks to it. Absolutely. I have made it clear. And when I said earlier, as far as the 
I always want to know what they have total. What is their net worth going into this trip? And we're going to adjust the spread to that. So if you spent a bunch of money lately, uh, let's lower this spread, right? In case this wipes us out completely. So that was my way of kind of monitoring those risks of right after a chop. Yeah, if you're chopping, like like they could be in debt to you and in these weird situations you can get into when you do a chop and you go on this brutal losing streak. So I've gotten to experience um, some of that, but it's, yeah, we, I'm really happy with how smooth every, everything has gone in between us as a team. And so, yeah, there's no way, no, how, how do you know which is the right way to do it, which is the best way to do it? And I think I've really just been learning. You got to make a decision and learn from it. So it's been good. The team play has been amazing. Like to have a group where you can connect with and everyone gets to talk to each other. Like it's brought like a real meaning to some of my friendships and like an importance to it. Now, like we know we have something that we have to talk about and it's very beneficial for our life. So I've really liked that. What's the worst losing streaks you've been on as a team? Um, So the worst losing streak has been recently. We have the bet spreads within the last three months. And we started going two by 1500 in the States as a max bet and um, getting to like two by a thousand very early. So I knew this was going to be a swingy. But yeah, as of last month, yeah, last month or over the last two months, I had a minus $110,000 downswing that lasted around um, probably 310 hours or so. And it was just all my solo numbers as well, that 110K. Uh, was just me getting killed the entire time. And yeah, so just completely on my solo numbers. My team was like kind of popping off throughout it, which was great recovery, um, me having some of their action. Yeah, that's been the worst of it so far. Has it turned around for you or, or are you still working on it? Yeah, it has. It has a little bit. As of recently, the last trip was a lot better. So yeah, we, we are in uh, sort of a recovery mode. But that's just the game, right? You're not always at all-time high, unfortunately. Yep. You're rarely at all-time high, less than 2% <laughs> of the time. If you're um like 100% bankrolling everyone, your money must be spread around to so many people. I guess you haven't been in a situation yet where like everyone is basically losing at the same time, and then you're like, oh, wow, there's like no money left. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that scary when like your money is spread in all these different places, and if it doesn't just so evenly work out, I mean... Yeah, absolutely. Like we did a Vegas trip where we had four people. And in that trip at the beginning, everyone was getting crushed. And like, I just had four people running around Vegas and everyone is texting me for money. So yeah, you get to a point where it's like, all right, no, just, uh, just go for one more session. Right. I'll, I'm driving to you, uh, right after whoever. Right. Yeah. And I've had situations where you have enough money to maybe be betting the spread but you don't have it in um, Canadian dollars or you need more US dollars for this trip or whatever. And so, yeah, it's definitely caused for just like, I have to keep a lower amount with two players that are in different areas and they have to just keep an eye on each other and be ready to like fill someone up and maybe even a flight. But that hasn't happened too much, luckily. That's part of why the church team had such a big bankroll was the logistics of having money for, you know, if I had to do over, I would have not, There was a stretch with the church team where we were really overfunded. I don't want to say how much because it might have been more than we were supposed to have without like securities and stuff. But we were overfunded and it diluted the investors quite a bit, which I was always a huge, you know, six figure investor in it. So I wouldn't have had so much money. But part of it was just 
well, how do we have a dozen players each have a hundred grand or, or close to it? I would have done more legwork moving the money around to not dilute investors so much, but that is really a challenge. Yeah. I never thought of like the amount of logistics that comes up with moving money around, but it's insane. Yeah. Where do you go to get the best rate to convert your Canadian and US dollars? Yeah. So I've found that, first of all, anytime that I've needed to convert money in the States, it is so much more expensive. And so I think that might be, yeah, this could be a good talking point because I recently had this conversation with someone that's got a ton of experience and they didn't know that in countries like, like such as like Canada, the exchange rate is very, very small. So I go to just Chinese markets in my area and I've always done it that way. That's what we did. That's what we did in Canada. Chinese markets. Pretty good there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Compared to like, there was one time I was trying to change money on the east side. I'm making my phone calls. I call like 11 places and it was just, I was like blown away. I'm like, this is how bad the exchange rate is. Every casino I went to, it was like, you're getting tortured compared to back home when the fee is like very relatively small and they're up for negotiating when it's above 10K. Wow. So you can go into this little market and exchange like over 10,000? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's not as many, as much paperwork with the money in Canada compared to you guys I've noticed. Is there a CTR rule in Canada? Yes. Same thing. Same thing. 10K. Yeah. Same thing. You get there way earlier because it's Canadian money, of course. When are they going to adjust that for inflation? Move it to like 50K <laughs> because it's been 10K for 50 years. This, gosh, nothing makes me more frustrated than that. Imagine how much that would change the game. Right now at this point, it's like, have I maxed out my bets? Because it's like, I get to the CTR so quick and then it's over or most likely over. I would love for them to do that. <laughs> it would be amazing. But yeah, that is a tip for anyone. When you're converting money, if you're playing in a different country, I bet it's better in that other country than it is in the States. Interesting. When you're in the US and you get CTR and you have a Canadian passport, you don't have a social, you don't have a U.S. social. Some casinos, like, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do. Have you have you come across that where they're just, like, they're not sure what to do with you? Yeah, it's taken for some long cash outs, but um, the bigger businesses have a process where they just give you a foreign, I don't know, some foreign ID piece of paper. Uh, they get you to sign it, signing a waiver, and then they're good, you're good. They didn't need to get your sin off you because you don't have one. And, um Yeah. I would, say, I would say that is a little bit of benefit, not having a SIN number. Do you guys ever do team play in the casinos or is it all splitting up playing solo? No, we've never done it yet. It's something that, yeah, we still need a lot of practice at. And then aligning everyone's schedules has been tough because everyone on my team is like extremely busy. If they're not full time, they have kids and... Yeah. So just getting those dates lined up is tough, but it is something that when we're all together, we started practicing. What is the, uh, like the trespassing culture, like at the casinos in Canada and like, do you, your players like return after trespass? Like, is it not a big deal at all? Or do they heavily enforce it? Yeah. They're so polite in Canada. It's hard to, I, Joe used to have audio of a back off and the guy was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the people are completely different. Who you play with, uh, yeah, just the players at the table. It's like you go through, yeah, it's it's cool to experience the different people of the world. But as far as trespasses go, um, yeah, they can still do it. And it's very similar to how the States does it. And as far as we go, when we're 86th, that's it. We no longer play at the place. 
Okay. Because I know in some provinces, they can basically trespass you from the entire province, like every casino, just automatically at the door. If you scan your ID, it's just like an automatic red flag, basically, because that happened to us in a certain province and like, but it was only three year ban that the bans up by the way. So I might have to uh, go back, but it seems like it's a little bit harder because even though some of the casinos were like owned by separate companies, the, what do you call it? Like the gaming organization is all the same. And the way that they checked IDs and everything was all linked into that system together to find trespassed people. So it, it seemed like it would be a little bit harder to get by, but I don't know if you guys had that experience getting banned. Yeah, maybe it takes a little longer at the start, but then once you're like flyered in an area, it's way more uh, serious than in the States. Yeah, it's a much harder system to beat. Um, So I've been flyered in two provinces in Canada, and both of those flyers came from the agency company that's like the Ontario uh, Gaming and Liquor Board are the people who flyered me. And so I just found it crazy, right? And then as far as my home state as well, flyered by, because they have a, um, there's like government owned casinos in Canada. So it's, they have an incentive. It's in their best interest for me not to be playing at their casinos. Gosh, the government is in the business of like basically taking money from their citizens. It's one thing where the government oversees the casinos. It just feels so wrong that what's best for the government is to like, get all their citizens to lose money at casinos. Yeah, and so you'll notice at some of these places, it is a completely different approach when it's government-owned versus private. They just have some of the strangest rules, differences, and whatever. But yeah, it's it's all well. The games aren't incredible here anyways, so it's never a big problem when I when I lose an area in Canada. It's, it, what makes them worse? The pen. <laughs> to find uh, less than one pen on a six deck game here is it's pretty much gone yeah like i've only heard about sometimes where maybe oh this casino was good six seven years ago but uh yeah as far as it goes like it makes sense for me to do more playing here because i like to keep canadian dollars but if it wasn't for that i could see why players don't focus here as a country do you tend to get more playing time do you think in canada versus u.s Like, I guess session wise, like, are they quicker to back off or are they more lenient since the game's not that good? Yeah, average session would have to be slightly longer here. The limits are much lower. So that would be a factor with it as well. When I was a red chipper, I I got like 200 hours at a casino. That was great. I was breaking things for 200 hours and that's the most tolerable I found, which that's great, right? But I mean, it's at uh, the red chip level. And so since then, yeah, the tolerability is not much better than in the States, I would have to say. I want to go back to, you were saying some of the people that you bankroll have kids. What length of trips can they go on? Because that was with the church team. It was a lot of, not all, that we definitely had some single people, but it was quite a few people that were married or married with kids. And so it meant that we couldn't do the Joe 748, like seven weeks straight trips or anything. Yeah. Have you gone seven weeks in a row, Joe? I was about to say, I was going to correct Colin as seven months. <laughs> Didn't you play one casino for like seven weeks straight? Yeah, that's, yeah, true. The longest trip they've gone on, the ones who have kids, has been, they did seven days in Vegas and some surrounding areas. Yeah, they just pretty much 
can take a week off, have the grandparents watch the kids, and we make the most of it for that week. And there's there's other jobs where people have to be gone for a week, you know, especially business people that travel internationally or whatever. It's But there are challenges, you know, which is why, gosh, people tell me about games and I'm like, that sounds so awesome. There's nothing I'd rather do than go play this game except be around for my kids. So a tough challenge, but I'm glad it's, you know, working for them. Yeah. Yeah. They're making the best of it. They do find that when they get uh, a week to do this, it's a good break, <laughs> a good break from their busy lives at home. And they love the process of it. Is Vegas still like uh, good for you guys right now? Yeah. Nice. That's so nice to hear because usually you hear the opposite. You know, it's Vegas is just so sweaty all the time. But I guess if you have the right approach, then it's doable. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I'll go over that efficiency approach. And I mean, like, I don't mean to say that, oh, yeah, we're just like the ultimate efficiency team. I'm sure everyone's working towards that. Um, but Vegas is an area where you just beat these guys to death 15 minutes at a time. And your numbers still look great at the end of the day. And I mean, if it, every session is going to be 15 minutes, maybe not so great. But just getting to the next place as quick as possible, not even thinking about it and see if we can catch someone sleeping tonight has been the process for us in vegas yeah i remember like going up and down the strip just playing as fast and hard as i can and i'd be like walking to the next casino i have my jacket like slung around the front of me and then i'm counting the money like underneath my jacket to put into my log and get it all reset and ready for the next place like wasting no time not the smartest safety move but of course of course yeah yeah when you get it all uh, working well together, you you get the back off and you already know exactly what you're down walking up to the cage down or up. Or maybe you've made a little bit. You feel like James Bond walking out of there sometimes when it when it all goes just perfectly. Yeah. The, the one concern I always had playing those higher limits, especially somewhere like Vegas, is the frequency of getting backed off mid-shoe. Because if you're getting backed off, this is probably a little dramatic, but if half the time you're getting backed off mid-shoe, that means half the time you're playing a game that's cut in half. So there's that concern of like, well, gosh, we want to be aggressive. We want to hammer them, but also not find ourselves in a situation where we're getting backed off mid-shoe more often than not, or or even, you know, even like a third of the time. So do you know roughly how often, like what percentage of shoes you're getting backed off mid-shoe? Yes, yes. So when we start getting too many of those is telling us, okay, that player, the city is sick of you. You're done playing when it becomes too many back offs mid shoe. So every back off mid shoe is, is marked down and the session is really just marked as no EV generated or even a hit at times as well to EV. So yeah, that's kind of our marker for when like, yeah, you can go 15 minutes at a time, but if you're getting backed off mid shoe, then that's a sign that, uh, yeah, they're sick of you. That's really smart. I wish very badly that we would have had those logged in our records. I think that would have been really smart and could have helped us make better data-driven decisions and also could have helped explain some of the EV. You know, maybe we're way overestimating EV because we treated it like a game where they're cutting off a deck and a quarter, but actually they backed you off after one deck. Yeah, that's really smart. Good for you guys for that. I think it was the EV correction on our Las Vegas trip. I had minus... 11,500 was the estimated EV correction. And so we do do something for that. It's not perfect, but yes, yeah, it's very important to be aware of that, especially as places start getting more competitive and competitive. Are any of your teammates like getting good comps these days or is it hard? Yeah, we do good for comp. Um, I mean, if good comps are just like uh, hotels, <laughs> like that's my favorite comp. Keep your trip expenses down. 
Yeah, exactly. So after a back off, we know we're giving ID to the cage. I encourage everyone to ask them to log that session, get your win-loss receipt and a player's card. And then just naturally with that has come all of a sudden they're just sending your email comps and whatnot. So I think as of a result of us giving our ID at these larger stakes, it's definitely just a lot of trespasses in the mail, but then as well as some that are just not taking you off that comp list. And they added that one session that was you betting massively. And now you're, yeah, you're just getting the free rooms and whatnot. And then as far as um, phone calls as well, like I've found places where it's like, oh, I don't think I'm getting a comp here. But I might as well call this card that I got last time. I asked to speak to a host and I found out that like, yeah, if you're just nice enough, a lot of the times they will. They have that in the budget to give you a, a hotel room if they think that you're expected to play. So this has been super fun. It's so rare to talk to people doing a team structure because it's so hard. <laughs> I know from experience and I feel like I just got super lucky to kind of have it work for however long it did, five, six, seven years. But um, any memorable stories you can share with us in your 1,500 to 2,000 hour career so far or teammate stories? Yeah, absolutely. Like the first one I think of was taking my childhood friend on that first trip through Washington State. And so I'm preparing him for what it's like as best as I can. And he's ready to go. He knows that this is work and not um, vacation. Right, So that was drilled into his head. And then so we're off. Yeah, like I said, he's played maybe 15 hours in Canada, something like that, just to get warmed up. And we're off to our first trip. This is his first big trip. So we get through Washington. He plays about two casinos. It goes well, quick back offs, but he gets his hours in, felt good. That was towards the end of the night. So we're getting back to the hotel. We park the rental at the hotel and um, go home for the night. Wake up the next day, our car has been broken into and our two phones are gone. We need US phone numbers. So both those, we left them in the car. That was dumb. Uh, and the car was robbed. <laughs> and so first thing we do is call the cops and we're talking to them. We tell them the situation and it's just like, you know, we're, we're getting nowhere. This is going to be like, if it gets solved, it's going to be within weeks. It's just, it's, it's not going to happen. I have to say this next part, I, I can't recommend doing this, <laughs> um, but this is what we did. So we had the phone on Find My iPhone. We could see the exact location of the phone, which was about six minute drive. So we got in the car and uh, we're going down. This is in Tacoma. And so we're in a rough rough part of Tacoma. As we're getting closer, we're like, oh, goodness, is this a good idea? And I'm like, yeah, well, it's up to you, buddy. Um, I won't force you to do nothing. And he's like, yeah, I'm down to do it. And so what the plan was, we pull up to where the phone we know is. It's in the house we can see. And I sent him up there with 40 bucks in order to hopefully buy these phones back off these guys. And so he goes, he knocks on the door. (laughs) Someone opens the door and is like, what up, fool? It's just something along those lines, right? But it was was friendly enough. And uh, so he's like, hey, man, I just, I I don't want no problems or anything. I'm just uh, uh, like, somehow our phones ended up here. We just want to like, we have 40 bucks since you found them. We'll buy them back. And, uh, and they were like, uh, let me see or whatever. So they slam the door on them and they go running around. All of a sudden the door kicks open and and they have the two phones in their hand. And they're like, hey, sorry about that. Yeah, I don't really play with that shit. That was my homie. But uh, yeah, give me the money. Holy cow. Wow. They got the money. We bought the two phones, 20 bucks each. And we were back on the road in 45 minutes. Otherwise, it would have costed us like a thousand bucks and then new phone plans. I love that you offered him 
20 bucks per phone. Like <laughs> you could have offered them, you know, 200 bucks per phone or, or 300 bucks per phone and still been way ahead, but 20 bucks per phone and they went for it. It was something like that. Yeah. They were shitty phones. It didn't take much. Maybe if they were like expensive phones, it would have cost us more, but, but yeah. So then I just remember being in the car, right. And we're just headed to the next spot and I'm like, all right, are we focused? We're ready to play perfect blackjack. And he's like, I'm ready to go, man. Yeah, this is not what I was expecting for a trip. And I think that was such like an introduction for him because it's like, yeah, I tried to prepare him for everything. But like, how do you tell someone that these are the type of situations that you can get end up in? Like, I have stories like that where it's just like random stuff like that happens more than once. And um, yeah, you just have to find like how to manage it and just be quick about it. Like I said, I was proud about that one. We were back on the road in like 45 minutes, right? It would have been half the day we would have been farting around with that. Wow. That's a great story. I don't know if I'd recommend it either, but I'm glad it worked out well. What's the uh, risk of ruin percentage on that? Right. In, in Tacoma? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What advice would you give to others who are thinking about bankrolling a player? If, if you're already thinking about that, you know what a good investment this is. And so on that front... It's literally just up to the player. Is the player in your book, you have that famous quote, like, do they have the courage to drop their bet to minimum for the next shoe? Something like that. I might have obliterated that. But like, just do they have the courage to play that perfect game? And so if you know they do and you've tested them out, you've watched them in casino, then it's just trust. And so like, if you have those three things, they have the perfect game, they have trust, and you already understand that what a good investment this is for your money, then I would say, go for it expand it i'm gonna add to that i know i asked you the question but i do think it is really important that you had as much experience as you had because i get asked pretty regularly through blackjack apprenticeship someone that hasn't been a card counter or they're they've hardly been one and they want to start bankrolling people or they want people to start bankrolling them and i think that both can be really risky if if you don't really know what you're getting into. If you start bankrolling people and you're not experienced, then there's a really high chance of it not working out. Or if you just take on someone else's money when you don't have much experience, you know, there's a lot of ways it could go south. But yeah, with the experience you have, and it sounds like kind of the street smarts you have, of you've figured out so many things that a lot of people have a hard time figuring out with motivation and with the relationships and all that, then it is a very good investment. For sure. You do such a good job of speaking to such like a broader audience. I guess that's come with uh, your experience from doing these podcasts or or whatever. But yeah, you speak so well to like a, to everyone. Whereas I find that like, yeah, my answer was much more suited to, I was like obsessed with it. So to the viewer at home, if you are the person like me that was obsessed with it, then I believe you can make it work. And so, yeah, if the person, if the player isn't as experienced as humming and hawing it a lot more, then maybe it isn't for them. But as far as me and the way I looked at it, um, I seen it as an opportunity to become much more competitive against casinos. And yeah, and once I started doing it, for me, it was, I could handle the swings on myself. That's as big as I started the next player. And it was it was amazing to have that, so. Yeah, there is something so satisfying about like, you know, maybe playing someplace and they didn't give you much time, but then one of your teammates goes in and then makes up for that extra time. And it's like, we're going to get you eventually. <laughs> like, even if you got me super quick, I just remember playing at the Palms once someone I was bankrolling was playing, you know, doing our standard one by 25 to like two by a thousand on the double deck. And then, uh, 
you know, they got backed off and then I went to set, I went right back at that same table to play right away. And I heard them, you know, like talking about them and being like, Oh, they had a lot of balls to like, just spread like that right in front of us. Like, who do they think they are? And then I went and did the exact, then the count just jumped up right away. And I was like, Oh, two by a thousand. And then they were just rolled their eyes, looked at me. That's awesome. Yeah. I've totally experienced the same thing. It, uh, and when they're like backing you off, sometimes it just feels so good that like, you can be so accepting that, okay, yeah, back off, no problem, because you know you have like another bullet lined up at that play. And it's funny you mentioned the palms. So every time I've played the palms, it's been like I found them being one of the sharpest casinos I've ever played at. If I get to finish the shoe there, it's been like grateful. But then all of a sudden, one of my teammates, brand new, very little experience, it's her first trip to Vegas, and they let her go for like nine hours. I was like, all right, let's test out your game again. <laughs> let's, let's make sure this is all sound. Because did they really just let you go for like nine hours? And um, no, it wasn't a six to five game or nothing. No, she was thoroughly playing perfect. And for whatever reason, they just, they let her go that long. So it's a small sample size, but definitely an indication that like they're relying way too much on their own database or surveillance database of the face and not even doing any work of evaluating right away, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's tough to like find where their chinks in their armor are going to be. I think an important lesson I've learned is, yeah, you're competing against the casinos, but more importantly, you're competing against the people that are working the casinos. And like us, like everyone has bad days, is distracted on days or whatever the reason being that you can't figure out why are they letting me go? It's probably just something like that is happening. And I think that's why like it's given me motivation to like, whatever, this game's sweaty. I've never got time at it before, but it was only a back off. I'm going to hit it again. I'm going to make sure I get it out of the way. And then all of a sudden you get four hours. So yeah, good for you guys, the approach you're taking and thanks for sharing your story with us. And and I'm looking forward to hearing an update down the road from Rick from Canada. Yeah, that was awesome. If I can, I want to give like, I want to give a shout out to my family, my parents. I have amazing parents. Like I could tell stories about my dad, especially all day growing up with him. I would, uh, you had five kids as well, right, Colin? You have six kids? Yeah, so they have five. Anyways, and it would just be like, um, he would be driving us to school. I think it was four different schools at that time, and I was the last stop. So he's driving us one by one. And so we'd be going to my school, I'm last. And he would say, like, do you want to go to school or do you just want to come to work with me? And so I would go to work with him in a heartbeat, right? Yeah, just like living on the job site like that on days. It was like the value I got from that was... I feel so much higher than I would have gotten from the day of school. And so, yeah, I just wanted to like, that's really like, cool. Thankful enough. Yeah. For the upbringing I have, my mother is just like, was the ultimate nurturer. Um, my siblings, the oldest was such a protector. Like from her, I learned like, don't take shit from nobody was the biggest thing I learned from her. My brother would just include me in everything. Like, even though he was eight years older. Um, yeah. He was just awesome. Another complete workaholic. There's a lot of those in our family. My middle sister went through crazy adversity and came through it. And is now it's just inspiring to see where she's come. And then the youngest is she's the smartest out of all of us. And yeah, you'll probably be hearing from updates from me one day for sure, as well as her too. So I look forward to keeping in touch. That's really awesome. Thanks for sharing that. How do your parents feel about what you're doing? Well, I just didn't tell them for the longest time. But at the start, my mom was like, she didn't like it just based off safety reasons. Now they both just love it, love hearing about it. And um, yeah, I think at least. That's great. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm super grateful for that. So I just wanted to shout them out. I'm done bringing it about my family now. I get more excited about hearing about awesome families than, you know, <laughs> I mean, I love hearing about kicking casinos asses, but love hearing about awesome families too. And lastly, I would just say to you, Colin, like so much respect for what you've made here. And uh, yeah, I just think, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Like at the amount you've advanced the game, you've made these casinos have to be sharper or we're going to come in and crush them now in, in large numbers. And I think you should feel nothing but being proud of that. That is like, that's the game we're playing, isn't it? We get sharper as players and the casinos have to sharpen their game as well. And so to anyone, because I know there's players that think that too, that, um, oh no, they're the BJA guys are are sharpening up casinos, whatever it, whatever it might be. I just think that's the day we're in. Now you have made all these amazing tools available to like the average player. Um, so you're coming in with like all these like BJA tools, um, pro betting software and network casino 411 is huge. And yeah, so I just want to say, like, yeah, thank you for that. It's <laughs> I've used it tremendously. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot. Nothing more satisfying than than seeing people take the work we put into BJ and use it to kick some casino ass. Well, to learn more about beating casinos, check out blackjackapprenticeship.com and we will catch you guys next time. 